Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. Good to see you all. Be with you in the house of the Lord today. Welcome to our guests, our friends with us today. And we're praying always for those that are traveling and our church. Blessings there. And uh, I want to begin with a quote. You've heard this quote often. You hear it a lot in churches. God is good all the time and catchy, isn't it? It's true, but we often fail to make a connection with it. We fail to make the connection, I think, sometimes between that reality and our suffering, don't we? I mean, is God good when He ordains, when He orders or permits evil, pain, and suffering to come into our lives? How could he be good all the time if pain and suffering happens all the time? We know suffering is a thing, don't we? I don't think I have to tell you that. It's real. It's more common than we realize and that we like to think about. But I think we struggle to see it clearly, to have a godly perspective on it, because it comes so much. It does. In fact... Our view of suffering can be really warped as Christians. You know, there are even some well-meaning people, they try to get God off the hook for suffering. And you think about the historic holocausts like the Jews of Nazi Germany or the modern-day holocaust of abortion, 9-11 terrorist attacks, hurricanes, cancer. I think of George's, Pastor George's little nephew. And some think in those situations, You know, God hates that stuff as much as we do. It hurts him. He's loving and he's gracious, but he's got nothing to do with all of that. He's impotent, powerless to do anything about it. I think they have a small God, those people that think like that. Then you have others who have suffered. They don't know how to look at it either or understand it totally. And they say, you know what? God is all-knowing all-powerful, and all-present, and that's all true. And he could stop all suffering, but he chooses not to. He's either unloving, or he doesn't care. He's a distant God. We're reading right now about Job in our Bible reading plan. Talked a little bit like that the initial week after his affliction, his incredible suffering. And so we can lose sight of what God is doing in suffering. It's about perspective. Perspective is the word that means how you look at or how you think about things. In fact, I'll show you a biographical picture and a reaction to suffering. If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians, that letter, I could go to Philippians chapter 3, the book we're in right now, but I'm going to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, actually, so you could get this biographical sketch of Paul in this situation. 2 Corinthians 11, just listen to this litany of suffering, starting in verse 24. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 30 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city. A lot of danger. Danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, as if all this wasn't enough, he says there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. It's a wonderful life. Wow. And wait, there's more. In the next chapter, we read about his infamous thorn in the flesh. 
familiar with that phrase? This happens after Paul was like raptured or caught up to the third heaven. And it says he was caught up into paradise. He saw things that we could only, we couldn't even imagine what heaven is like. As a human being in this world, he saw all that. So he had reason to boast or brag. I mean, he wanted to, wouldn't you? But it says this in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming what? Conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Take it away, the suffering, Lord, right? But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's amazing. Now, we really don't know what the thorn in the flesh was, but it had to hurt a lot. Could have been spiritual. I think there was a physical dimension to it. Most scholars suggest it was his eyesight. The Lord maybe took his eyesight, a good deal of it. But did you see the purpose in what you've heard, what you read? Did you see the purpose of the thorn in the flesh? What was the reason? Why did he get it? Fear of conceit. To prevent that from being a thing in Paul's life, which is pride, that could ruin his testimony and his ministry and cause him to sin, God made him suffer. And this is the big takeaway from this message. I want to tell you right now, if you remember anything or write down anything, it's this. Suffering is a gift of God's grace. Suffering is a gift of God's grace. Now, some of you might be going, Pastor, you've gone off the deep end. Really? Suffering is a gift from God? I say yes. Because it's about perspective. The choice of how we look at and think about things is a massive concept for the Christian. Here's an example. Think about the cross of Jesus Christ. Praise Lord's Supper Sunday. We're singing about that, thinking about that. If you were a typical Jew 2,000 years ago, the time it happened, you might have thought, what a tragedy. This innocent man, this teacher, he's kind of a prophet. He was brutally tortured and executed. And that would be the end of it. If you were a typical Roman citizen at the time, you might have said, well, another Jewish prophet criminal of some sort. He wasn't a zealot, but he's got this Messiah complex, and he was crucified. He, he talks crazy. They had to put him to death. So what? Meaningless for them. But what's your perspective of the cross today? Especially Lord's Supper Sunday. I'll tell you what mine is. Jesus suffered and died, then resurrected, so millions and millions of people could be saved from God's wrath by repentance and faith in him and what he did. I call that love, and I say that suffering is a gift of grace to me, to you if you're in Christ, and to those around the world. So in our text, Paul has a perspective on his imprisonment in Rome. He's writing this letter to the church at Philippi. And this man who suffered so much and so often was so joyful because he chose to see his suffering as grace gift from God. And he saw it in two ways. Those are the two things we're going to look at. Number one, the gift of suffering is for Christ's sake. And secondly, suffering is for our sake. Christ's sake and our sake. Let's look at verse 29 of our text. See how suffering is for Christ's sake. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, what is the for, therefore, that starts this verse? Well, I mentioned last time, Paul taught us 
there's at least three ways in which we can walk or live a life worthy of the gospel, like we're striving for in our sanctification. The first one was we're striving for unity in the church body. That brings joy. And then second, there's a striving to stand firmly and faithfully in the gospel and in the word of God. And then here comes the next one in this text. And that is to live worthy of the gospel is to suffer. To suffer for Christ's sake. When you, you hear that phrase a lot, oh, for Christ's sake. It's normally used in a negative way, in an inappropriate way. When we talk about Christ's sake, we talk about it's Christ for Christ on his behalf. That's what sake is talking about. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 13, it's translated as for his good pleasure. We know we suffer, okay? The world is cursed by sin. The planet is. Our bodies are. They're decaying. We're going to die out eventually. Relationships suffer. We're going to have problems. We're going to have conflicts. And in Paul's context, that included persecution and opposition. And by the way, not just him. You, if you walk faithfully in Christ, you will suffer, to whatever degree, persecution and opposition. All right? And guess what? Hang on to your seat. That's God's will. That's his plan. And that's his purpose. That we, his people, that he loved first before we loved him, that his son died for, it is his will that we suffer. The Greek word, Pasco is there for suffer. It's a word that you might hear in it, Pasco, like Pasco lamb. could have a positive connotation to it. Here the context tells us it's a negative. In fact, it's the English word we get passion, like the passion of the Christ. So to suffer has the idea, literally, of going through something unpleasant, something painful. Something you have to undo, endure or go through. Pain. Evil. That's what suffering is. And guess what? God wills it. Paul's clearly saying God is the good giver of gifts. All gifts, including, not excluding, including pain and suffering. And I, I get you right now. We recoil when we hear that. When we think about it. But the word granted there, God grants us this gift, has the idea that it's been given, something given to us, something of a privilege, in fact, as a grace gift. What is grace? It's the verb here. Grace means favor, kindness. So really, not only are we believing Christ, according to Paul, we are to suffer for him, and God is actually being kind to us, yet. He's being kind to us. He's doing us a favor by planning for you to suffer. But listen, for good and greater purposes. Isn't that what Romans 8.28 teaches us? That God works all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Isn't that true? That would have to include suffering. You know, pastors are often asked this question, I, and a number of you have asked me, what is the will of God for my life? Who am I supposed to marry? Where should I live? Where should I work? I cannot give you a specific answer to any of those questions. And I don't think God's going to whisper the answer in your ear either. But what he has done is this. He has given us his revealed will from his revealed word. And he has in there his will for all Christians. If you look up your New Testament where the phrase is, what is the will of God, the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, you'll come up with a number of things. I'll just give you a few of them. God's will is that you be saved, is that you be spirit-filled, is that you be sanctified or set apart. And it is will. It is his desire, it is his command that you be willing to suffer. He wills that. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2, if you turn there and make a note of it, you'll hear this from that apostle. This is not Paul now, this is Peter. 1 Peter 2 verse 20 says, This is a gracious thing in the sight of God that you suffer if you endure. 
For to this you have been called. You've been called. Just as Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus is actually saying through Peter's text, come with me. Come suffer with me. Come suffer like me. And in fact, if you flip a page in chapter 4 and verse 19, if you're there, it says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's what? Well, they will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's a very appropriate verse. When I think of my hospital visit I made this past week with our brother John Burnett, who's battling cancer, and we've been praying so much for him. We talked that evening. We spent a couple of hours together. We talked a lot about Scripture and what God's doing in his life and with Kathleen, his wife. And He said there were two big takeaways from his current struggle and his suffering. You know what they were? And he repeated it over and over. Trust God and witness. He said, trust God, trust God, trust God, trust God. And witness. Share your faith which he's doing, strapped up to that radiation chemotherapy while he's in the hospital. That's what he said the Lord has taught him through his trial. This is why 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Of grace, people. That's what it means, suffering for his sake. It's a privilege. It's an honor to follow our Lord in suffering. So for starters here, what this verse is teaching us is you need to be reminded today that God grants you, gives you two things, two incredible things. He gives you salvation and suffering. Both acts of God Salvation and suffering on your life are sovereign acts of his divine and sovereign grace. When we say God is sovereign, you hear that word a lot here. You hear us talk about it here a lot from the podium simply because the Bible talks about it a lot. And what that word means, concept is, God is in absolute control over everything. He is the ruler he is the ultimate authority, and He is the power, not over some things, but everything in this universe. Pastor, do you have a text for that? Because that's a bold statement. Sure, turn to Acts chapter 17. Take you to many places. This is Paul again being quoted by Luke in Luke's Gospel. Luke, the writer of Acts, as well as his Gospel. Acts 17, beginning in verse 24 talks about the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord, Master of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man, talking about Adam here, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Now get this having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way to Him. Wow. God has predetermined, folks, when you would be born, where you would live, for how long, and when you're going to die. You will not breathe one second more than what God allows you to do. And you ask then, fair question, what's our responsibility then as human beings? I mean, don't we choose? Pastor, haven't you told us, choose to sin, choose to suffer? Yes, I have. And we do. But what I'm saying is, all of our will and our choices are under his sovereign purpose. Let's think of an umbrella as all part of his providence. Providence is the outworking of his sovereignty. Remember? God's sovereignty in action. And you might say, oh, is that his permissive will you're talking about? You'd say that. Or other theologians would say God is the sovereign primary or secondary cause of everything that happens. 
I'm fine with that too. It's the case. It's him. And then you ask, what's our responsibility as human beings? Don't we choose? Right? It's the same with salvation. God ordains the means and the end of everything we do using our choices. I'll give you an example. Acts chapter 4. Okay? Peter and John have been arrested, punished for preaching the gospel after Pentecost. It's been an answer to prayer that they've been released. And the early Christians in the church of Jerusalem are praying, and they say this in Acts 4.27. For truly in this city, as we're praying to the Lord, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined What do you think of that? They did exactly, by their own choosing, exactly what God planned in advance for the foundation of the world would happen. That's your God. Just like salvation. One theologian says this, he sovereignly picks up a man out of the kingdom of Satan and places him in the kingdom of heaven. So the elect or the chosen of God, the church, is referred to some 25 times in Scripture, folks. God chose Israel. God chose you. And you need to know this so you can appreciate the sovereignty of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, I can show you all over the places. Ephesians 1 and 2. I'll give you a couple of verses. Ephesians 1, this huge sentence from Paul. Ephesians 1 verse 4. Listen to what it says. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and, holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And then verse 11, he says, Again, in him we have obtained an inheritance, getting stuff in the future, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things, that's providence, according to the counsel of his will. Flip over to chapter 2, if you're there. He's talking about all the things that we are as unredeemed unbelievers. And Paul says this in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses or sins, he made us alive together with Christ by grace. It's a favor. You have been saved. So this truth about God's electing grace is inescapable. It's all over the scripture. You say, but pastor, I'm not a puppet or a robot, am I? Really, it's all God? Well, after Paul clearly explains the doctrine of election, predestination, Romans 8 and 9, Israel and the church, he says this. If you look at Romans 10 in a very familiar text, just after having said what he said about electing, having elected God's people, he says this in chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, that means made, declared right with God, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So you say, what? Is that a contradiction? Is it either or? No, it's a both and. Not a contradiction, paradox. Maybe, but both truths are represented side by side in the Scripture, and they do not contradict one another. So a lot of people, they do get it. They do understand that salvation, even our repentance or faith, is a grace gift from God. You read that in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And also, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, God grants repentance, leading to knowledge of the truth. So your faith that you express and the repentance in your heart that you commit to the Lord to turn from sin to God, 
He even gives that to you as well as a gift of grace. So you wouldn't take any credit for it, of course. So that's why suffer for his sake. We are saved for his sake. So this is the parallel that Paul is drawing in Philippians 1.29. Salvation is a sovereign grace gift from God, just like suffering. So Paul's arguing in this letter that he is suffering. Suffering, listen, is every bit as big a gift as salvation. And listen, folks, you'll understand this. Think about it. Christian faith was born out of suffering. No suffering, no salvation. Right? What are we singing about today? What are we celebrating today? We're talking about the cross, right? The death of Jesus Christ, the day that Jesus was tortured and crucified 2,000 years ago. What do we call that day? Good Friday. Wasn't he tortured and crucified? What's good about that? Why would we call it Good Friday? How can something so bad, just look at the cross, look at the body on it, how could that be so good? Because it's what Christ and his cross accomplished, right? It's what came from it. That's the idea. You know what that is, right? It's Jesus, the spotless lamb, being sacrificed, shedding his blood, and suffering God's hell-like wrath on his shoulders in our place. So we remember that. And we celebrate that today. It was good for Christ in terms of the glory. It's good for us because we get the mercy. So we can call it good. Friday, even though it's a horrific death. You see, suffering, salvation. He's making the point here, first we believe in Jesus, then we suffer for Jesus. And he makes it personal, Paul does in his exhortation. He says, hey, you really think you're a follower? You really think you're a disciple of Jesus? You think you're the real deal? Well, just as Christ suffered for you, be ready to suffer for him. For the kingdom, for the cause, and for the person of Christ, just as I have. So here's my second point, and we're done. Go back to the text. Philippians 1, now verse 30. He's talking about suffering for his sake. And then he says, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. So you're going through this struggle... This affliction, and the root word is talking about agony. You're fighting, but it's for your sake. He's reminding the Philippians in this context what his experience was. What they knew of what had happened to Paul. They'd seen it, they'd heard it. Go up to verse 12 of the chapter. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard soldiers of Rome, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Wow. Remember what he had done and said when he planted the church at Philippi years before. He and Silas went there, Philippi of Macedonia. He preached. Gentiles are getting saved. Okay? They're meeting. And he does an exorcism, Paul does, on a woman who was a fortune teller. And the merchants of the area didn't quite like that. It was hurting their business. And then, this is what happens. Acts 16, verse 22. crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off, their, off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Sounds like suffering, maybe? And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. So here's the deal. Christ suffered. Paul suffered. Why don't you and me? That's God's will for us. Because God and his word is our teacher. And here's one idea. 
Suffering is a teaching lesson for us. We need it. We actually need to suffer. God knows it. It's because he made us. And we're in a sin-cursed world, so we have to have it. King David was a great man, wasn't he? But he suffered. And you know what he wrote when he was suffering? In that great Psalm 119, biggest chapter in the whole Bible. It's dedicated to the Bible. And he wrote in Psalm 119.71, It is good for me that I was afflicted. Same idea as suffering. That I might learn your statutes. Statute is the word. Is the law. David saying, I suffered. Good. He said it was good for his sake. Just like Paul told us. That he was afflicted and suffered because he's learning. He learned the word. Pain and despair drove him to the word. You go to the Word, you go to God. That's where you find God, first and foremost. Folks, if you lose your job, you lose your money, your health, your spouse, your kids, your family, all of that and more, consider that God has permitted or ordained, ordered that suffering in order to teach you something. You say, really? I like the way C.S. Lewis put it in his classic book, The Problem of Pain. He said, God whispers to us through literature. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That is so on point. God has wisely determined that we need suffering. You don't want it. I don't want it either. I'm not lining up for that quest. But he's like, that's okay. Because you need it, I'm going to give it to you. When you need it. I like John Piper's take on this. His insight. He says, quote, we are to have superior joy in Christ over pain and pleasure. The devil has only two purposes, two weapons, really. Pain and pleasure. He'll either hurt you so bad that you hate God, or he will give you so much pleasure that you don't need God. The solution to both is the same. God is more precious than what I lose, and God is more precious than what I gain from this world. So, I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you a little bit more specifically how and why suffering is a gift from God. Okay? I can't tell you why individually you are suffering what you're suffering when you do, each individual circumstance. But I can tell you, according to the word of the living God, why we as people, from a bird's eye view, why we suffer and what God seems to be doing in our suffering. And I think it's going to encourage you. I think it's going to help you make sense of this, to help you with your perspective. Okay? Here's three macro reasons or things that God is doing in his people and the word when they suffer pain, trials, and tribulation. Easy to remember. You ready? Three big reasons why we suffer. Salvation, sanctification, and glorification. Salvation, sanctification, and glorification. We're going to look at each one. Salvation. Think of Joseph. Think of Genesis 50. Sold into slavery by his brothers who really wanted him dead. He's unjustly jailed for more than a decade. He's finally let out. He's a leader now in Egypt. His brothers in a famine come to him for food. They recognize it's him. They're reconciling. And what did Joseph tell them? What you meant for evil, God meant. In the Hebrew means planned. God meant or planned for good so that many would be saved. Oh, really? Turn in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel again, if you would, in chapter 13. This is the 9-11. This is like a 9-11 of this time in Jerusalem. There were present at that very time, verse 1, people who told Jesus about the Galileans, blood Pilate, and mingled with their sacrifice. Pilate has just done a mass execution of a number of Jews. 
And so they ask him, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? That's what the Jews at that time always thought. Choose to sin, choose to suffer, like always, like Job's friend, right? Look what the Lord says in verse 3. No, I tell you that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or what about the 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Oh, isn't that random? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? The Lord says, no, I tell you. But unless you repent, turn to God, you will all likewise perish. His meaning perish eternally. Because everybody dies physically. He's talking about eternally, spiritually. Okay? The Old Testament tells us, folks, you've got to know this. The secret things belong to God. That means that's his hidden will of decree. There are certain things that happen. You, you and I don't have the right to know. I'm not going to tell it. That's TMI for us. Okay? Too much information. What matters, though, according to Jesus, was not how many people died and how they died. No, that's not his concern. His concern, look, 150,000 people are going to die around the world today before this day is done. You can... Be sure. Jesus is concerned about one thing. Where are you going after you die? What's your eternity? Repent or likewise perish. That's his answer to the question, why suffering? He's like, I'm not going to tell you in your case. Just repent or likewise perish. Wow. Spoiler alert, by the way, on the BRP. Job tried to go head-to-head, toe-to-toe with God about this question. He did suffer a lot. And he's not aware that it's a test of faith, Job, and a lesson for Satan that God is doing. And so God, toward the end of the book, just batters him chapter after chapter with rhetorical questions. Who are you, you little grasshopper, trying to figure me out? Asking me these questions, and he just, verse after verse, where were you when I created the heavens, stars, sun, the moon, creation, the animals? I didn't see you there. What were you doing? Who are you? And after all of that is done, Job says in Job 42, 5 and 6, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself. And what? in dust and ashes. Just like Jesus had told those people to do after the tower fell. God is God. You and me are not. But, you and I have no idea the number of people that God brings to saving faith every year in the face of calamities and tragedies. I'm talking about hurricanes like last year in the Gulf Coast, tornadoes, earthquakes, Tsunamis, homes are destroyed, yes, lives are shattered. Church ministry teams, though, are among the first on the ground, not only bringing love to victims, but the gospel. They meet their needs, and you know, I hear the stories, and bad things come to people. God only knows that had to happen for them to get saved. We suffer You suffered in your sins. Remember that today on Lord's Supper Sunday, how much you were suffering before you came to Christ. Now, because of that, you came to Jesus and you repented. That's why Romans 5 said God demonstrates his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, you can include in their suffering to him, Christ died for our sins. Joseph, Job, Jesus, there's so many examples. The gift of suffering is for our Say, verse 12, again of this chapter from our text, Paul said, because I'm suffering and in prison, the gospel is advancing. The kingdom is growing. You see what God does with it? Suffering can bring repentance and faith. Tens of thousands of people have come to saving faith in Christ. You know why? Because they read the book of Job. Job like faith. Suffering is a tool of God for suffering. I believe of, of salvation. I believe that's why our brother in part, John Bernat, is suffering the way he is. He's leading people to Christ. And my prior ministry, my prior church many years ago, there was a young man 
that I knew, pastor's son, in his 20s. He was a baseball player. It looked like he was in great shape. And uh, he suffered from a debilitating form of cancer. He died shortly thereafter. He was about 25 years old. But in the hospital, while receiving treatment, he led so many people to Christ. And you would ask him about that in the midst of all that he was doing. And he said, this is why God loves you. So I can lead people to Christ. That's our text. You see, for the sake of Christ, for that brother's sake. Here's the second reason we suffer. From macro side, sanctification. Sanctification. Sanctification means being holy, set apart. We need suffering for that, folks. If I can just take you to Romans 5 very quickly, verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, Rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. You can translate that Greek word as patience or perseverance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Oh, see, those are three dimensions of suffering we can rejoice in because of what it produces in us. That wouldn't happen any other way, which is namely holiness. So we grow in grace, folks, through trials. And you want assurance? Who many here, how many of you want eternal security? You want to know, you want to really know that you're a Christian. Why isn't that the great hand If you're a Christian, okay. I mean, don't you want to really know that? Well, if you really want to know that, you're going to have to suffer. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, there you go, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is what? Tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning his second coming. Folks, you don't want to be found without faith when Jesus returns. It's too late then. I've told you before here, faith, fruit, and fortitude, another word for perseverance, are the three main ways you know that you're really a Christian. And you're going to have to go through a fiery trial produce those three things, okay? The greatest good, some author said, the greatest good of the Christian life is not the absence of pain, but Christ-likeness. And that goes to another grace gift, okay? In suffering and sanctification. That's in independence. Not the word independence, but in dependence. 2 Corinthians 1.9, God says, told Paul that he was comforted in his afflictions and sufferings by God. Paul wrote, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, we're not to be independent people. We're really to be dependent on God for everything that matters and on the church with each other. And here's another one. Sanctification. Grace, gift, and suffering, and sanctification in maturity. Mark this in James, the book of James in the first chapter, verses 2 through 4. If you think any of this has sounded wacky before, now you're really going to think, is the Apostle James off his rocker here? James 1, 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Consider it joy. When you suffer, that's what he's saying. For you know, now here's why, that the testing of your faith, again, here it is, produces steadfastness. That's a synonym for endurance and perseverance or patience, your translation might say. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Full effect, perfect Complete. All that does is describe spiritual growth or maturity. Life is hard, and it has to be for you to grow in grace. 
You know, I've never heard, I've said this before, I've never heard of anyone much maturing in faith and character while sipping on daiquiris at the beach. I don't know, maybe just me. I love the beach, but I don't go there expecting to necessarily grow in Christ and in grace. You know what I mean? Then in ministry, another sanctification reason the Lord allows suffering and considers it a gift for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Comforts us in our affliction, suffering, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. And with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You know why some of you suffer and then are comforted by God? So you can comfort somebody else. That's the same passage, by the way, where we learned about dependence on God and suffering. Some of the best counselors that I've ever known, some of the best disciples of troubled or afflicted people, Christians in particular, are people that suffer the same sins they did, whether it be sexual sin or substances, gambling, what have you, because they're like, let me pray for you and put an arm around you. I've been there, done that. It's no accident. It's not coincidence. Not of God's sovereign. They suffered. They were comforted in the Spirit and by the church so that they can uniquely comfort others. Wouldn't you say that's a gift from God? So here's my third argument finally. Suffering is a gift from God. Glorification. Glorification. Let me read to you First Peter 4 so you have it in mind. Verses 12 to 14. In fact, you know what? Instead, John 9, John 9, and then we'll talk about whether it's your glorification or mine or, or the Lord's. In John 9, Jesus is in Galilee walking with the disciples, and they see a man born blind from birth. And so again, in that Jewish way, they're like, Lord, was it his sin or his parents that made him born blind? Just like Job's buddies, is that cause and effect thing. And again, Jesus answers something that they were not expecting at all. Nobody would. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus says the man was made to be born blind so that God could heal him through Christ and be glorified, be praised, be worshipped. And you know what? If you think about it, if the man isn't born blind, suffers that affliction, there's no miracle of healing. There's no God-glorifying, Christ-exalting ministry of love and compassion that are there for readers like us to marvel at 2,000 years later. People, we appreciate and love that God is our great physician, right? The only reason you can do that because we have something called disease. No disease, no healing. We honor our Savior today, don't we? Because we have sin to deal with. No sin, no Savior. You understand that? The triune Godhead planned before time began to create a world where sin and suffering would exist so God would be most glorified in redeeming and restoring it. See, the cross was not plan B. Some people think that. Adam and Eve fell, and God was like, oh, didn't see that coming. What now? And they will come up with a cross down the line. That's not the God of the Bible. Nope. This is all part of the plan. This is all part of God's goodwill and purposes. It's amazing. What about us? Does suffering bring glory for us? Absolutely. There's a phrase that I keep talking about that points to this. You've heard me say before, and I adapted it from another phrase. Life is hard. God is what? And? And Christ is coming again. Why is that phrase encouraging? Because it's talking about hope. We have something the world desperately needs today and doesn't have. That's hope. 
we have hope in heaven and hope in what? Hope in glory. Resurrection glory. Christian hope, as we've explained to you many times, and will continue to, is when you're anxiously awaiting for a future event to happen in faith that hasn't happened yet. But you know it's true, you believe in it, and you can't wait for it to happen. That's hope. And every one of you should have it. Because it's been promised. It's real. What is that event? The second coming of Jesus Christ. Why? Because at that moment, you are going to resurrect with a new glorified body. And you're going to rule and reign with him forever. That's the glorious reality that we look forward to, folks. Suffering here and now helps us pray for and focus on the future, on that hope. You know what? The Lord says that's a gift from God. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Suffering should make you yearn for Jesus in the flesh and for heaven. That's why we call it the hope of glory and the hope of heaven. Because that brings even rewards, folks. Rewards. We don't talk enough about that, as our sister Honey was reminding me of this morning. We don't talk about rewards. And I told her we have another brother in the church that loves to talk about the rewards coming to us. It's a source of hope. Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord Jesus said, Blessed are you, it's like happy are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Speak when you're persecuted? Yes, rejoice and be glad, he said, for your reward, because your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we glorify Christ in the way in which we suffer here and now. So Peter and Paul are telling us, as fellow heirs, when you're an heir, you inherit something from family, right? Well, Paul says, you get to inherit stuff provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. So if we suffer like Christ to a degree, we're going to be glorified with him. You know, when Peter's talking about this, being glorified in suffering, I think he had the Shekinah glory of God in mind that was revealed to Moses in the burning bush. You know, Moses had it when he carried the Ten Commandments on stones. He came down off the mountain. He had this glow about him. Blew people away. He was glorified at that moment. We're going to have something like that. That can happen to us now. Remember the first martyr of the church? Stephen? First deacon, probably. He was being persecuted. He's being stoned to death for preaching Christ. And guess who's there? A guy named Saul, witnessing it, who's going to be named, known to us as Paul. And it says in Acts 6.15, And gazing at him, all who sat on the council saw that his face, Stephen, was like the face of an angel. Stephen at that moment was on earth, glorified. And that awaits us. So as I close, let me just say, suffering again is a gift of God to his people. For Christ's sake and for our sake. And we know that because we see the gifts in our salvation, in our sanctification. And what was third? Glorification. Amen? When you suffer, depending on what your relationship is with Christ, I think you're going to have a better idea now of which of those three pertain to you when it happens. And I'm not minimizing suffering. Not at all. We know that. Peter told us it's a constant. You just heard it. It's always with us. And it can feel unbearable. It can. But yet, when you trust God with it, and you're filled with the Spirit, you know that suffering shapes us, refines us, prepares us, purifies us, So you can handle suffering now, rejoicing in it, I think, a little better 
if you understand, it's a grace gift from God. And that's a big application. Here's another one. Draw your hope and your joy in suffering. Get some help. Get some people to pray for you. 2 Corinthians, I close with 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen to Paul again in the midst of all he went through, beginning in verse 8 to 11. Will not the ministry, that's chapter 3, chapter 8, chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, starting in verse 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 9, that for your sake he became poor, so that by your poverty he might become rich. And that's also chapter 8. That's a great text, but it has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm talking about. However, Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Now I got it. Listen to Paul. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strengths that we despaired of life itself. Did you hear that? Paul's about ready to throw in the towel. He's just about done. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us, again, rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hopes that he will deliver us again. You also must help us. This is for you and me, okay? Help us, Paul is saying, by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. That's the passage that John Burnett took me to in the hospital this week. He said, just pray. Pray for me that I would be healed and pray that I would be in my soul delivered from this affliction that I would have joy in my soul. He said, help me. He said, you know what? I love Christ Community Church. If this church is about the truth and love, and this is a loving community, he told me, I noticed that the first time I walked in the door, which I think was about two years ago. And he said, this is a praying church. And I was like, what can we do for you? Can we take you some food? Can we help out at home? Kathleen, anyway. He just says, just do what you do best, CCC. Pray. Just pray for me. Pray that I would have joy in my soul. I'll be honest with you. I love reading about Paul, 2 Corinthians. That's been the main book for John and, and, uh, and his suffering. And I want to be like Paul, but you know what? When I suffer like that, I want to be like John Burnett. I consider him to be a hero of the faith. Pray. Lord, as we prepare to take the table, Lord's table. I'm so thankful, Lord God. I have to be thankful for the suffering that I've endured, which is not compared to so many here in our congregation. I've suffered somewhat lightly compared to those who are really suffering. But I'm thankful for my brothers and sisters that have, as I have, in the way that I have, because it has drawn me to you, and you've drawn near to me. It was an aid to my salvation, to my sanctification, and to my future glorification. I'm thankful, Lord, that I can count today my suffering as a grace gift of yours for the sake of your son Jesus and for my sake. That's what I hope we've learned today. Suffering is a gift. That's the name of the message, Lord. Impress that on us as we think about the most loving, gracious act of suffering ever occurred in the history of mankind. And as we said earlier, it resulted in the salvation of millions and millions of people and continues to each and every day. The cross of Jesus Christ. I love that old, rugged, wondrous cross on which our Lord made his sacrifice for us so that if we would repent, turn from sin and self to you and trust in Jesus alone as the payment for our salvation, and the forgiver of our sins, that we would be saved and sanctified and glorified. 
and we would have abundant joy no matter what in Christ Jesus. I pray that will be real today, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage. 